following program may contain language that is explicit. And by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Thursday, October 8th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, thousands of eyes were on Mike Pence. Also, TV ratings were pretty high. I am obviously talking about the insect. That will be the main takeaway from the debate. Not kidding. Political class will spend some time on the substance for a day. But in four years, the debate will boil down to a fly. Like a witch's brew. But like the fly, there was one thing Kamala Harris was not able to swat away. And that was the question about packing the court. Yeah, Thank let's you. talk about packing the court then. Let's talk about the fact. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to. So the Trump-Pence administration has been, because I sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Susan, as you mentioned, and I've witnessed the appointments for lifetime appointments to the federal courts, district courts, courts of appeal. People who are purely ideological, people who have been reviewed by by legal professional organizations and found to have been not competent, are substandard. And do you know that of the 50 people who President Trump appointed to the Court of Appeals for lifetime appointments, not one is black? This is what they've been doing. You want to talk about packing a court? Let's have that discussion. Look, I don't think that answer was a disaster. I also don't think the issue is dispositive. I really don't think huge swaths of the American public's votes will change depending on the answer, but it really is not as good an answer as the Biden-Harris campaign should be able to muster, and I do not understand that. Why are they allowing a pathetically rudderless Trump-Pence administration and campaign to score any points? Why do they not want to improve on answers in subsequent debates? Answers that probably play as pretty evasive to viewers. First of all, let's talk about the issue, okay? Will Democrats, if elected, expand the size of the Supreme Court? That's the issue. One reason they're not giving a yes or a no is that they don't have a yes or a no answer at the ready. They don't know their answer. And that's not being wishy-washy. That's rational. It's reacting to a number of factors and events that may well change by the time the Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress. A main thing that could change is the question of if the Democrats will actually control the White House and both houses of Congress. So I'll get to what the more satisfying, better answer would be in a second. But right now, let's spend a little time thinking about the two straightforward answers to this question and what the implications of each will be. Let's say the Democrats were to say, no, no, we won't be packing the court. I think that's an impossible answer to give. The Republicans would just say, we don't believe you. The Democrats, or many Democrats, would be incensed by that. They would say, A, we should, and B, you don't give up that leverage so easily. You don't neuter yourself prematurely in a negotiation. And also, and this is really important, I don't believe the answer is no. I don't believe there is anyone in the campaign who is fundamentally jumping up and down saying, we must not pack the courts no matter what. Even if the American public wants us to pack the courts, even if it becomes clear that the courts are damaging America. I I think for these reasons and more, no is not the answer the Democrats want to give, should give, or in any way inclined to give. Okay, what if Biden-Harris were to say, yep, yep, we're going to pack the courts? What would the fallout be? 
Isaiah wouldn't be as bad as some may fear. Donald Trump commits to quite radical policies all the time. Policies that even Republicans say they don't like before Trump commits to them. And then because he does it, the Republicans adopt it as their policy. Protectionism, North Korean negotiations, Russian appeasement, all those fall into that category. Yeah, Trump has a different brand than Biden. It's shaking things up versus calming things down. This allows Trump more latitude in committing to the untraditional, maybe even the incautious thing. I'll acknowledge all that. But I do want to say, I don't think that they're going to say, yes, we will pack the courts. But if they do or hint at that, I don't think it will be as dire as many others believe. So what should they say with all this in mind? Something like this. So you're asking me if I'm going to commit to a policy for an America that doesn't exist, for a situation that doesn't yet exist. Actually, I believe it's better for a president not to jump into commitments without really thinking them through. I am funny like that. So let's break it down. In between now, when we're talking right here, right now, and whatever future date a court packing that you're talking about might happen, think about all the things that could change. Judge Coney Barrett could lose in her confirmation hearing, could lose in the Senate vote. You know, all that would need for her nomination to go down is for two Republicans to say, because two are already saying it, so two more to say, you know what? This is not right. This is hypocrisy. This makes Republicans look like liars. You're telling me there aren't two Republicans who will not change their minds on this? You're telling me Lindsey Graham himself, chairing the committee, won't realize that he's getting hammered over and over again about his hypocrisy. And I'm going to say his lie. Maybe he'll say, God, this is hurting me. I could just reclaim my Senate seat and not lose to James Harrison if I level with the South Carolina people and say, I know you're uncomfortable with a senator representing you who says one thing and does the other. So you don't want a senator who goes back on his word. So I'm not going to do that. That could happen, right? Or look at all the six senators out there. It could get worse. I take the virus seriously. If you have COVID-infected people into the Senate chamber to vote, it can infect others. It could kill some of the older members of the Senate. So maybe Comey Barrett loses. Or maybe there's no vote. Or maybe Republicans change their mind. It seems crazy to me that over the last few years, every time there's been an expectation of anything, it's been upended. Every assumption has been challenged. Circumstances swing wildly from day to day. We know this. We're living in it. But when it comes to looking at the future, we're so certain it's going to play out exactly as you're saying that it's going to play out. No problem. No COVID. No defections. I don't know. But you know what? If it does go through, if her nomination does go through, what do we have? We'll have a different America, won't we? A worse America, I would say. We'll have a Supreme Court with six conservatives on it. I know Judge Roberts sometimes makes decisions that conservatives hate, but it seems that the country appreciates those decisions and that the law demands them. That said, we will have a Supreme Court with six Republican-appointed judges who aren't just Republican-appointed judges. There are, very, there are some very fine Republican-appointed judges, but there are so many of them very conservative and very out of step with the country as a whole and very out of step with a rational interpretation of the law. So you now have two of three institutions of government, which are held in extremely low esteem by the American people. The court that you're talking about, the court that you're actively crafting, it threatens to become the third out of three that have lost prestige, respect, and maybe even legitimacy. I mean, Donald Trump will have appointed half of those conservative justices. He never had a majority of the country voting for him or supporting him, 
But the Constitution allows him to pick the judges, even though he's not popular and his policies aren't popular. He could pick judges and call that popular. Fine. But you know, the law does allow us to address what happens if the court acts radically or is constructed in a radical way. We had Alito and Thomas talking about revoking gay marriage the other day. That is not what America wants. It's what Mike Pence wants. It's what extremely conservative people want. It's not what America wants. What if the court goes out and takes away health care from 20 million Americans? That's what will happen with the court, as you're proposing, that will be terrible for millions of people. And legal abortion, of course, legal abortion could be taken off the table, but not just that. Fertility treatments could be deemed illegal. IVF. You know, a few years, we're going to have a million babies becoming voters who wouldn't even be here without IVF. Do you think they want laws that, if enacted, would make it so that they wouldn't have even existed? So the answer is, I'm going to listen to the American people. I'm going to advocate for laws which will most improve the lives of the American people. And I'm not going to do anything now to restrict my commitment to America and my commitment to getting all branches of government working together to help the American people and to accurately reflect their desires. Okay, so that was what, a four or five minute answer? Yeah, too long for a debate. But he could say it on the stump and he could pick a few key thoughts to present in a tighter format. You know, hey, look, this nomination, first of all, could die, especially if the Republicans recognize their hypocrisy. The key interest is to act lawfully to reflect the needs of the American people in all branches of government. And my governing style will not be to paint myself into corners before the actual reality and the actual facts become known. Or he could just give the whole answer. I mean, if it's a virtual debate and Biden's the only one there, there's really nothing holding him back from laying it all out there. And he'd probably win on points and substance and style, but not by as great a margin as when Donald Trump actually showed up. On the show today, I spiel about the outbreak and outcry in New York's ultra-Orthodox religious community. If you've just seen these shocking videos of Hasidic Jews rioting, but not heard the underlying arguments that fuel their fire, well, you might be shocked anew. But first, Michael Ian Black is a founding member of The State and a mainstay of state-related comedy projects like Stella and Wet Hot American Summer and the rebooted Reno 911. But he's also an author of children books, which I read to my kids and like very much, and now a book to one child, his son. It's about the very idea of manliness, an idea that needs a retooling, but not, Black says, stigmatizing. A deep conversation that's funny with a funny guy who, as you will hear, has a lot of depth. Michael Ian Black, up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Michael Ian Black is an actor, comedian, and writer who you might know from the state or Wet Hot American Summer or Reno 911, where I believe he played uh, Kevin the Sex Offender. I just wanted to mention that credit specifically. In light of his <laughs> new book, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, and it is about, well, toxic masculinity and what the phrase means and how to... 
and dogs yeah. and how to live a better life. <laughs> yeah. Michael and his dog, welcome to The Gist. Who is that? Who is that guy in the background? That one is Oli. Uh, there's a good chance if Oli starts barking, Squash will also start barking. But so far, so good. So I think we're in, the, we're in the clear for the moment. But thank you for hosting me, Mike. Nice to be with you. Absolutely. Why'd you name him Oli and Squash? Well, Oli is named after my, uh, one of my wi- wife's long dead Norwegian relatives. Uh, uh-huh. And Oli, just, it, 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 it's just a pleasant dog name. And then Squash came along a few years later, and we stole that name from another dog on the rescue page, and we just thought it was a funny name. Is he like zucchini but yellow? Is he uh, a waspy racket sport? Which kind of squash is he? He's the kind of squash that is um, uh, small and dumb and annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like a few squash players I know. Very good. Um, so this book, and I feel like I was uh, I, I was witnessing some of the birth of this book, the germination, because you wrote this op-ed for the New York Times after one of our several horrific shootings, and then I heard you interviewed on NPR talking about masculinity, and it was all coming together, but it took the form of a letter to your son. Tell me about well, tell me about the project itself and why you chose to frame it that way. I almost didn't choose it. it it's more like it chose me. I, after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting happened a couple of years ago, I had been paying a lot of attention to gun violence because I raised my family about six miles away from Sandy Hook, and my kids were in elementary when, school when Sandy Hook happened. It was obviously a devastating moment for the communities around here. Was it a different elementary school in the same district? It was a different, we live in the town next door. So it was very close. I'd been very public about my feelings about gun control, gun violence, and railing against uh, gun manufacturers and the NRA specifically for years. Then Marjorie Stoneman Douglas happened when my kids were in high school. And I um, just started venting on Twitter, just the way I often do about, Guns, And then I asked the question that I feel like nobody was really asking. And it was an obvious question. And maybe it, because it was so obvious, nobody was asking it. And the question was, why is it always boys who are pulling the triggers? Why is it always boys and young men who are doing this? What is it? Is there something about guys that leads us to this? So I was, mm-hmm. just, I was just venting on Twitter. And the New York Times contacted me and said, do you want to write an op-ed? And I was like, not really, no, because I'm not an expert on this. Who am I to get in, you know, to write something for the New York Times? And they pay like shit, so. <laughs> and they pay like shit. So I was reluctant. I was like, I, you know, I just don't think I'm qualified. And they're like, we'll think about it. So I thought about it and I wrote something and I was like, I don't know if this is good or not. It's just, these are just my thoughts. And they published it, and it, it became viral, for lack of a better word. And then a publisher came to me and said, do you want to write a book about it? And I had the same reaction. I was like, not really. Like, I'm just not the guy. I'm not smart enough. I'm not an academic. I'm not a historian. I'm just a guy, you know, who has these thoughts and has a son and a daughter. But, you know, it was, it was, I was talking specifically to, about boys. And, and my editor, Betsy Gleek, who 
this was her idea. She was like, well, you know, if not you, then who? Why not you? And I was like, shit, why not me? Like, maybe I do have something to say about this. If for no other reason, then I am the father of an 18-year-old kid who's a senior in high school and he's about to go off to college and maybe I have something that I can say to him about this stuff. And so that's how it happened. Like, I, I was, I was kind of dragged into it. I'm glad I was. Well, not only the, for nothing else other than the fact that you have a son, but if people have been uh, following your career, you have the funny stuff that you do where you play characters, and then you have a nonfiction side, which is often funny. But it seems to me that the revelations of your life, uh, as told through your memoir and other work, kind of are bringing you to this place. There is a through line of masculinity and your father and mother divorcing very acrimoniously, and then your mother being in a relationship uh, with a woman that was also pretty terrible and maybe visiting upon you a lot of uh, sturm and drong about masculinity. It wasn't like you're just some funny guy who had these thoughts about society. You very much lived and embodied this topic. Yeah, and for a lot of years, I wasn't even aware that that was happening with me. But if I look back through my comedy, like the theme of you know, trying to understand masculinity and um, has run through all the way. You know, I I had a bit on my first comedy album. There was one bit about how, you know, if you want to emasculate your friends, here's one way to do it. And the joke was like, when you go to Denny's or something, you with your male friend, casually ask him what he's going to have. And mm-hmm. then when the waitress comes over, order for him. So you'll be like, he'll have the cheeseburger and the fries. And, you know, it's incredibly emasculating when a man orders for yeah. another man. And then I had a bit in there about how when people do an internet search for me, what comes up is Michael Ian Black. And then the very first thing under there is like gay, question mark. Uh-huh. And then under that, it'll say gay, period. You know, so like <laughs> this stuff has always been present for me. But I never really thought about it in a deep way until the last several years. And it just so happened that, you know, that coincided with this Twitter rant and with my son getting older and with this book and this letter to him. You'll probably hate doing this, but uh, I want to I want to dissect the butterfly of that joke for a second. All right. Why is it funny? Is it funny because I can think of a few reasons and maybe different people in the audience are laughing at it for different reasons. Maybe there's the contingent like Haha, that would be a good trick to pull on Dave. <laughs> maybe. And by the way, I don't know if you can tell by my, my intonation. I don't respect that. Uh, maybe a portion of the audience actually says, you know, if it is emasculating, if it is demeaning when a man does it to a man, why not when a man does it to a woman? Like, what do you, what do you think's going on there? I don't know how much you've examined it, but why do we find that joke? Is it an uncomfortable funny or what? It's a recognition that it would be emasculating. And then, and then if you were to take the next step of like, well, why is it emasculating? And the answer is because our whole system of masculinity is predicated on dominance, right? It's all about who's kind of on top. And mm-hmm. so there is something dominant 
about taking the initiative to order at a restaurant for another guy. You're taking away his own agency. You're saying he's not capable of speaking for himself, and so I'm going to order for him. It's also putting him in the traditional place of a woman, which is such a no-no in traditional right. masculinity. Like you're being the sort of gallant husband there and the chivalrous guy ordering on behalf of the weak damsel in distress who happens to be your buddy in that case. So it's right. it's emasculating. And and also it's funny because it's at a Denny's, you know, it's very formal. <laughs> like, and, then, and then please send the wine steward over, sir. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so why is it that the fundamental problem, or maybe it's not the fundamental problem, it's just what you lit on, is the idea of men and their anger. Why isn't it that angry men in this country have access to guns? You know, I'm sure there, in fact, I know there are a lot of angry men in New Zealand, uh, especially one, but (laughs) there's not the kind of gun crime. I guess what I'm saying is, why is the best thing we could do or an important fundamental thing that we could do is to think about how we're churning out men and how men think because we've churned out men who thought in a certain way for years and years and years and not sort of address, okay, these are men, these are guys, they're going to be on some sort of spectrum from a little knuckle draggy to enlightened and using all the right gender pronouns. What we really have to do is have better gun laws and teach them things about rape and consent and maybe workplace civility. We can do all of it, you know, but I think what you're asking ultimately is what's the root of these problems? And my take on it is that the paradigm, the model of masculinity that we think of when we think of traditional masculinity isn't serving us nearly as well as maybe it has in centuries past. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is the nature of the culture has changed dramatically in the last, let's say, 60 years, but it really started changing with the Industrial Revolution. But in the last 50 or 60 years, the things that society values aren't the same things that it valued 100 or 200 years ago because the fundamentals of society have changed. Somebody being brawnier, isn't as valuable anymore as somebody being more creative. The nature of the economy has changed. The way that we engage in diplomacy and politics has changed. So the nature of warfare has changed. We do not need to breed as many soldiers as we once did. Men are not constantly being called up to serve in the armed forces. Women's roles have changed for the better. As a result, they're encroaching, some men feel like, on traditionally male arenas, and that makes some guys feel really threatened. Because if the first rule of masculinity is no sissy stuff, which we kind of alluded to when we were talking about the Denny's joke, then as soon as a woman is doing stuff that men used to think of as stuff that only men did, then they start retreating from it. And they started, they start feeling like, oh my God, like I can't do what I used to do because now women are doing it. Does that make me more of a woman? So I got to become even more aggressive, even more sort of knuckle draggy. And men are kind of retreating into a corner of masculinity and feeling defensive about masculinity. And my argument is we don't need to feel that way. Like we can actually use the lessons of feminism 
which are to say, like, they've expanded what femininity is, and we can do the same thing with masculinity. And rather than retreat, we can expand and expand outwards. And I think we'd all be better off if we did. So you write in the book that the phrase toxic masculinity is a little like the phrase New Jersey native. It's hard not to feel defensive. Right. <laughs> uh, self-deprecation. But what about that? What about the fact or the idea that we're having this conversation and we're trying to um, provoke some reform, but a lot of that provoking is the kind that a man might turn off. If the thing that we're supposed to aspire to is wrapped up, it's a two-word phrase, and one of the words in the phrase is literally a synonym for harmful, is that the best way to bring men along in this project? I don't think so. It's why I don't use the phrase if I can help it. Like, I, the part of the problem with the, with the phrase toxic masculinity, in my estimation, is that there's no healthy masculinity in the culture to contrast it with. Like, toxic masculinity sounds like it should be contrasting against healthy masculinity, but we don't even know what that is. So when you affix the word toxic to masculinity, it just kind of lines up like a magnet because there's not, there's, there's an empty space there. There's a lot of toxic behavior that men exhibit and there, that's unquestionable. And I want to figure out ways so that men don't behave in that manner. But first, I think, before we attack that, we need to understand what we mean by masculinity. Because if somebody says to you, be a man, you can be like, okay, what's that? And they won't have a good definition for you about what that even means. Yeah. And you know from being a father and I know from being a parent, the best way to shape people, uh, raise kids, but what are you trying to do? Shape people is not through don't, 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 it's to give them the positive model. And, you know, you could joke about that. Like, instead of saying don't yell, we say use our inside voices, but it is a better way to get them to use the inside voice. So the analogy is there. Instead of saying you're being toxically masculine, why not provide the positive model for what masculine should be? If it's even worth uh, holding on to that definition and that notion of masculine. I think it is. I think there's a lot of good in traditional masculinity. And in fact, I know there is because we celebrate girls who display traditionally masculine attributes and behaviors. Think about the last few decades as we've elevated the idea of the strong girl, the brave girl, the independent girl. All of those are traditionally masculine attributes that we elevate right now on one of our sexes and kind of denigrate on the other. And the reason we do that is because we're looking for girls to feel empowered, to feel like they can be anything and do anything. And the reason we denigrate it with some boys and men is because they've taken it too far, because they display strength in ways that are actually detrimental to the culture. They display too much pride. They display too much independence. But there's nothing inherently wrong with those attributes. In fact, they're great. They should be celebrated in men and women. Where I think we can go is expanding the definition of masculinity to include not only those traditionally masculine attributes, but also the traditionally feminine ones. So we don't say now, you know, you're a woman if you're strong, but not if you're nurturing, right? But we do that Mm -hmm. for men. We say you're a man if you're strong, but you're less manly if you're nurturing. No, we have that in us inherently. That is who we are. We are empathetic. We are caring. We are nurturing because we're human. All I'm saying is let's 
Open the door to that stuff. Let's be receptive to all of that stuff and celebrate that in men the same way we celebrate strength in women. It's not, I'm not saying anything radical. I'm not inventing anything new. I'm just sort of trying to frame it in ways that guys can understand. So Megan Dam says the big difference between our generation, we were both born in the same year, and Gen X or even Gen Z is that we prized toughness and they prize sensitivity. And her analysis is we probably should come somewhere to the middle. But do you look at your son and how he was raised and just how he thinks of the world as, you know, sensitivity comes before toughness in opposition to how we saw the world? In my son's case, I would say that's probably true. Yeah, I I think he's... He's very attuned to, I don't want to say political correctness because I don't think that's exactly the right phrase, but he is attuned to the sensitivities around issues in a way that I wasn't growing up, unless they happen to be my issues. I think he's very consciously non-judgmental. That may not always be good, but I think it largely is. And it's not to say he's not tough in the sense that He's not an open nerve walking around all the time complaining that things are hurting him. Not, not at all. But he definitely does have a sensitivity that other people may be experiencing pain and to be conscious of that. I do think, you know, the kids that he knows and his friends that I know are better citizens than the people that I grew up with in New Jersey in the 1980s. At that same age, they're, I'm sure they're perfectly mm-hmm. good citizens now. They are aware of the world. They are, I think, politically aware, if not necessarily politically engaged. His generation, to the extent that I know them, makes me feel pretty optimistic. My generation, maybe a little less so. The name of the book is A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. The author is Michael Ian Black. Thanks so much, Michael. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Over the last two nights in New York City, an ethnic minority group has taken to the streets in protest of the government's over-policing and violation of rights. All right, that sounds like one kind of story. You have a mental frame for that, but what about this story? Also over the last two nights, conservative science deniers, sometimes waving Trump-Pence flags, have engaged in militancy to counteract life-saving programs experts say are necessary. That sounds like another kind of story, but it is the same story with an 18th century twist. In New York City, the Hasidic, the Lubavitcher, some other sects of ultra-Orthodox Jews have been resisting decrees to wear masks and to refrain from mass gatherings inside or in close proximity outside. 
As a result, COVID cases have spiked within many of the neighborhoods that are heavily populated by the ultra-Orthodox. And over the last two nights, dozens, maybe even hundreds of largely unmasked protesters have taken to the streets, setting fires and occasionally harassing or even attacking those who they deem to be in opposition to them. So who qualifies as the opposition? City health authorities do. The mayor and the governor does. Two weeks ago, before the mass protests, a couple of self-identified media activists showed up to a briefing by city health authorities and began berating them. One was Heshi Tischler, who hosts a local radio show called Just Enough Heshi. He was unmasked and aggressive at this news conference, and he was joined by another Heshi, Heshi Brock, who became downright belligerent. Some tape of that attempted public health information session. Get out of here! I listened very no. intently. Go to your fucking ice house, I'll play. Sir, you keep moving towards I'd like to answer the question. Hello! I don't want a mask! It's my freedom! I don't have the way you can pick up your If I can, we can answer your question, so I'm going to answer his question. That's a mask that works! That's a condom! Doesn't even work for sperm! The anger was exacerbated and unleashed last night. Here is one of those Heshies, Tischler, addressing comments to Charlene McRae, Mayor Bill de Blasio's wife, who is rumored to be running for office. And if you think Mrs. de Blasio, McRae, retired woman, whatever you are, you think you're going to get elected tomorrow president, you will not be elected. Heshie's going to go to all your little things, and I'm going to scream. The comments, in case you couldn't hear them, were reported by NBC TV's Miles Miller as calling McRae, an African-American, retard woman, coon, whatever you are. Some have said that the word was crook, not the racial slur, but it was still ugly. Uglier still, Tischler was in the middle of, and by many reports, urging the crowd to physically assault journalists. Okay, so maybe he is one rabble rouser in a volatile situation. And to hear some of the protests tell their side of the story, the issue is they have not been heard in their complaints. The government is painting with an overly broad brush. They're being insensitive to the needs of a particular community, a community that prizes in-person interaction, a community that sees it as a sacred duty to educate their children who can't just sit at home with their eight or nine or 10 member families and watch Netflix because they don't use Netflix. All right, but listen to this holy man, this leader. This is Hillel Handler, a Satmar rabbi who has long been anti-vaccine. This mask is junk. It's garbage. It's BS. What is the purpose of the mask? The purpose of the mask is to get you to comply, to scare you. Hermann Goering of the Third Reich was asked at the Nuremberg trial, how did you get the German people to do these terrible, horrible holocausts? He says, it's easy. You just scare them. You inflict terror. The mask is a tool of terror. Indeed, from personal observation, the large majority of the ultra-Orthodox community in the neighborhoods in Brooklyn in which I live and travel, they do not mask. There are objections to masking, even from some sources who are sensible on other health issues. Frida Vizel, a former member of the Satmar sect who is still culturally attuned to their thinking, wrote a piece for the Jewish Forward this summer titled, Don't Call the Hasidim Anti-Science, They Kept COVID at Bay All Summer. 
Vizel is not anti-science. She's in favor of vaccines. But the piece perpetuated a fair bit of ignorance. The first wave of COVID ebbing was taken as proof that it wouldn't spike again. The mass wearing of masks by everyone but the ultra-Orthodox was given no consideration in offering some protection to the ultra-Orthodox. The idea that a few months of declining COVID rates meant that there wouldn't be a return entirely discounted. And the discounting resulted in the pronouncement, they're not anti-science. Well, they are. Yes, not all of them. And sure, some of the loudest ones get all the attention. But last night, they burned masks. Again, there are many members of this community, there are leaders in this community, who disagree, who say wear a mask. But given their antipathy towards Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio, here's how Rockland County legislator Aron Wider had to phrase it. Oh, Dear friends, are we wearing a mask because Cuomo tells us to? Or Mayor Bill de Blasio wants us to? No. We wear a mask because it's the right thing to do and God wants us to. But enough people in his community disagree. They believe that God wants them not to wear a mask, to go out and to pursue their lives as they have, as if a coronavirus outbreak wasn't occurring. It's scary, and it's ultimately sad, where night after night, an enclave of some of the most cloistered New Yorkers go out en masse, demanding to be left alone, not realizing or not caring that with this virus, there is no such thing as total separation or immunity from the rest of the world. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist, and yes, she was raised in a barn. I'm barn folk, and your fancy door-closing ways will never change that. Daniel Schrader also produces The Gist, and for dinner, he's serving Muppets. Is it fish? No, it's Muppet. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast, the budget of which includes $240 worth of pudding. We had the 240 we had to have the put in. Oh, yeah. The gist, you know, we never thought of overthrowing Michigan. Not all of Michigan. Maybe Ypsilanti. Start small, see if it takes. But all of Michigan? Nah, unworkable. Umpro, depro, dupro, and thanks for listening.